listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Think back to a time in your life when you thought, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. When you thought, right now, the meaning and the purpose of my life is being accomplished. Consider that for a minute. Maybe some of y'all, if you're like me, you've only got like maybe a 30-second clip here or there. (laughs) I know for me, as I was thinking about this this morning, I thought, man, what is... When was the time in my life when I felt most fulfilled and most purposeful? And, and honestly, it's been when I've played music. It's, it's usually if I'm, I think back, um, like a real specific time. It was um, 2017, and I was playing at a, at a beach camp down in Florida. And it was a, a Lifeway beach camp full of college kids. And there were about 600 college students there. And I remember sitting, I was, I was back here on stage playing bass. And you're like, oh, well, of course, that, that's really fun and that's awesome. But I remember looking out just at those people, just singing and lifting their voices to God, hands raised in the air. My brother was standing here leading worship and his wife was there. And I thought, this is what I was made for, <laughs> was to play bass. That was it. And, and I looked out and I thought, all of these voices, this is what heaven is going to look like. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a selfish endeavor, but I thought, this is it. I can't wait to get to heaven to experience this. And I'm glad that I get to be part of that while I'm here on earth. Just for a moment. Have you ever had that? Like just that moment you thought, man, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's at a job. Whatever that is. For some of us, I would imagine, we go through most of our lives and we think, man, if I could just do that, then I would actualize my meaning of life my purpose in life, God's given purpose for my life, right? We're often chasing that. For a lot of us, we look around at, you look around at your life and you think, this, this can't be all there is. Anybody there? Anybody there this morning? For, for some of us, we came hobbling and, and barely walking in. And you're like, man, this, I, I don't understand life's purpose. And it's just got you down. It feels like this huge weight that's on your back, And you thought, man, if I could just get this off my back, then I could understand life's meaning or life's purpose. Maybe you're there. I'm there a lot of days. I look around, I'm like, man, is this is this all there is? Maybe there's a maybe there's a maybe there's a an acceptance. You thought, if I could only be accepted, this is where, by the way, if I were to land on something, if you're like, man, what do you struggle with? As, As we were sitting here singing that song, as David was praying, I thought, I need to be reminded that I'm accepted by the Father. That's it. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I'm reminded of Hebrews 3 where where we have access to the Father and he says, I approve of you because of the finished work of Christ. And that's really good and that's powerful and it's true. And it's there in the Bible and I can read it anytime. But am I engaging with that acceptance or am I still continuing to try to earn his acceptance? Because so often we're barely thinking about being accepted by the Father and the fact that we are, and we're trying to earn the acceptance and the approval of those around us. Anybody there this morning? I got a few more head nods on that one. I'm with you. I'm right there with you. 
My goal is to be accepted by everyone else around me, by my wife, by my kids, by my, uh, last night we were at a, a soccer game and I'm, you know, and it's, it's dark out there and nobody even knows my name. I don't know their names, but I want to be accepted by those people. That's my number one goal. And I may never see those people again. But in the moment, I'm thinking, I hope they like me. I hope they like my sweatshirt that says, Solideo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, how ironic is this? Maybe for some of us, you think, man, if I just had that next thing. Or let's think back to a time in your life and you think, I, I, I got this thing. And you thought, man, if I only had that, man, life would be so much better. I would be satisfied. And then you reach that thing. You got that thing. We spent last night, the first night in our home, our new home that we bought here in McDonough. And, and it's awesome. It's cool. Some of y'all helped me. Thanks so much. Some of you didn't. Yeah, we'll go Old Testament. Uh, so there's some different Psalms besides the thankful ones that we can pray. Uh, but we spent the first night in our home, but we closed on it about two weeks ago. And the day we closed, we went to the house that afternoon. And I remember walking, and there's this, uh, this nature trail that goes kind of behind the house, and it goes around to the other side of the neighborhood. And me and my boys, we were walking on that nature trail, and we got about to the other end of the nature trail, and it was about to start raining. Uh, really, really good timing. And we get to the other side of the nature trail, and I see the back of this house. And it was beautiful. It was black and white. And behind it, they have this tree house. And, and there's a little stream that runs behind my house. But behind this house, there was a bigger creek with fish in it. And I thought, man, I would love to have that house. No joke, I had just closed on my house an hour before, and I was already not happy with it. And so I had the promise of this house. If I can just, you know, sell my, sell my other house and buy this house, then I'll be satisfied. My wife will be happy. We'll be closer to so all these different things. It'll just be amazing. Life will be perfect. An hour later, boom. I mean, I wish I had that. You ever experienced that? Like, it doesn't satisfy and maybe for some of us, if we, we can look backwards at that, we can look forward and say, if I only had fill in the blank, then life would be better. If I only had a new van, if I only had a better relationship with my wife, if, if I only had more money, if I only had the ability to retire, if I only knew what God wanted me to do with my life, if I only had more time, if I only had more kids, if I only had kids, if I only had better kids, if I only had someone today, if I only, whatever that is, then life would be perfect. So I want us to look at this list this morning. We see these three things up here. Which one of these things resonates with you? Which one of these things, if you could just grab a hold of it, you could think, okay, now life is complete. I already told you, for me, it's acceptance. And after this, somebody's going to walk up, hey, I accept you. Don't worry. You don't have to earn our approval. That's fine. <laughs> like, I'm really glad for that. Thank you. Bless you. But, but I, that's, that's just me. Maybe you're looking for life's meaning or purpose. Maybe you're looking for peace or acceptance or forgiveness. Maybe you're looking for satisfaction. Here's what I want us to do this morning, just for a minute. I, I want you to ask God this morning. I'm, you're like, well, we already took time and prayed. We already prayed a couple of times. How many more times have we got to pray? I want us to pray something very specific. As we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to be looking at the first 17 verses in Luke chapter 9. And I want you to ask God, to just tap you on the shoulder when we get to the part of the passage that resonates with your heart. And so whichever one of these that you're really struggling with, man, if I had meaning or if I had purpose or if I had acceptance, if I had satisfaction, whatever that is, I want you to pay particularly close attention to that part of the passage this morning. And so just for a minute, I, I want to say, and maybe you're like, I don't know which one of those things. Maybe it's, maybe it's something else. But I know as we come to the word of God this morning, 
His word is powerful. His word is true. That's what we're going to be looking at. And we're going to see that the folks in this passage aren't just people that we read about on a page, but these people have real emotions. They have real struggles, just like us. The, the disciples, when we look at them, man, they're messed up. We're going to look at this guy named Herod. He's more of a drinker than he is a thinker. We're, we're going to look at the, the 5,000 who are hungry, who are coming in just like hobbling, hungry. They need some sort of satisfaction. Maybe that's you this morning. But for a minute, just for a moment, I want us to ask God to illuminate his word to our hearts. To which one of these particular areas is going to be especially impactful for us. So just right there in the stillness of this moment, there's going to be no you know, ethereal, cloudy kind of music playing you know, where you can feel the Shekinah glory of God. It's just going to be quiet. The only thing that's on is like the heat. Okay, But I just want you to ask God to illuminate his word to you this morning as we look at it. Take a moment, do that now. Amen. Psalm chapter 119 says this. I want you to repeat these words after me. May this be true of us this morning. So I'm going to say the line. You say it after me. Open my eyes that I may receive God's wonderful word to me. Amen. May that be true. Luke chapter 9. Look at these first few verses here with me. I want us to see this in these first six verses is that Jesus gives purpose and power to your searching. So maybe you come here this morning, you're searching for meaning or for purpose. We're going to see that Jesus gives that. He begins, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he, being Jesus, said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So we see here, let's break this down real quickly so we can see the purpose and the power that Jesus imparts on his disciples who are now apostles because he sends them out. So you're like, okay, what is, I'm not going to get into the theological debates over current apostles, but we see here the disciples were now transformed into apostles because they weren't just gathered in and called by God, they were sent out by God. But notice what he tells them to do. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, this was at the heart of both John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist said, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. So he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what does he tell the people to do? Repent. When you think John the Baptist, we think repent, for the kingdom of God is almost here. He tells the disciples here, he says, go, continue that message. This is the message, this is the ministry of Jesus, is to proclaim the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of God looks like this. It doesn't step into a culture and say, how can I appropriate this culture? How can I attract people to this cultural kingdom? But he steps into racial, racial situations. And he says, you know what? This racial divide, this isn't going to be part of the kingdom. I want to call folks from every race into my kingdom. This national divide, think about, he talks about the Samaritans, parable of the good Samaritan. The kingdom of God steps in and says, no, there's no national divide. We saw at the beginning of the last chapter where Jesus calls both men and women to come and follow him. There's no gender divide in the kingdom. He says that the kingdom is about unity in the spirit. You're like, okay, well, so are there any distinctions? Yeah, absolutely. We we don't just say, oh, well, everybody's accepted. We have to look at the truth of the kingdom, but the kingdom is for all people because Jesus is our king. And in this kingdom, Jesus is our king, but he's also the perfect sacrificed lamb of God. And so the kingdom doesn't just have a king that says, hey, I'm ruling all things, and and it's my way or the highway. Jesus, as this perfect king, comes and says, I'm going to be sacrificed for your behalf. That's the kingdom of God that they're going to proclaim. So in the midst of disease, in the midst of demons, in the midst of distractions, Jesus takes his apostles and he says, go and bring healing. Go and cast those demons out. That's pretty powerful. But that's the kingdom of God. Look at verse number three. He says, don't take any of these things with you. Now, some folks are like, well, okay, we have to take all the words of Scripture literally. (laughs) This makes for a really interesting type of church plant. This isn't necessarily normative, but this is what Jesus tells them here. And the reason for that is so they will become and be reminded that they are to be completely dependent on him and on not just his purpose in going and spreading the good news, but on his power. Look down at verse number four with me. He says, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. So in other words, you go to a place, this is the purpose, you go to a place and don't leave it until the mission is complete, even if you don't like the food even if you don't like your neighbors, even if it smells a little funny, God forbid, even if they have cats. That's what he's saying. You go there and you stay there because that's my purpose and I'm going to sustain you. Notice verse number five. And wherever they do not receive you, now notice the gospel has dire consequences. For those who reject the gospel, he says, shake off your sandals. Knock them together. He's like, man, forget this. Now, the crowd here would understand what he's talking about. The disciples would understand this because when Jews would go from one country to the next, what they would do is they entered back into the Holy Land. Maybe you're familiar with uh, Moses and the burning bush. What does Moses do as he realizes it's God there in the burning bush that's not actually burning? He takes his sandals off. That's right. So the Jews would do the same thing as they entered back into the Holy Land. Growing up, that's what we call North Carolina. Uh, but as they would enter back into the Holy Land, the actual, the real Holy Land, uh, Israel, as they went from one pagan country to another, they would take their shoes off and they would knock them off. As a reminder, this is actually holy. And so here he's saying, man, if the Jews reject you, those who should know about God, may they be as pagans. Rejecting the gospel has dire consequences. And I would plead with y'all this morning, in in a room with this many people, it it would be safe to assume that there are some who have heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus' finished work, and who have rejected that. And I would plead with you, don't wait until you're older. Don't wait until later in life. The book of Hebrews says it's, it's been appointed for man once to die, and you best believe right now, 
<laughs> now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. That's why Luke wrote this. He said, today is the day of salvation. And so I would plead with you, don't put that off until later. Respond in faith this morning. So we see here Jesus sends out the 12. Jesus provides purpose for the 12. He provides the Holy Spirit as power for these 12. We'll pick up in verse number 7. I want us to see here that Jesus is faithful to forgive your guilt. The way I'm going to get there is going to be slightly odd. I think it's weird that Luke includes these verses here. They seem sort of out of place. It's just kind of strange that he would just go from sending out the 12 to, oh yeah, and John the Baptist was beheaded. And now let's talk about feeding people from a kid's sack lunch. But here's why I think he does that. I think he does it to further impress upon these folks that the kingdom of God is for forgiveness. Look at verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, we would imagine if Herod, this world ruler, actually wanted to see Jesus, he could have. The only time that Herod actually saw Jesus was when Jesus was being about to be put to death. Remember, he goes to see Pilate, he goes to see Herod, and then he's taken, he's crucified, he's beaten and then crucified. That's actually the only time that Herod sees Jesus. And so we have a couple more years before Herod actually gets to see him. But here's, Herod says, look, I know who Elijah is. We're going to talk about that next week in the Transfiguration, why this is important, why he talks about Moses and Elijah. But he says, I, but who is this guy, Jesus? Is this John who has come back from the dead? So we have to understand that Herod, he, he could have seen Jesus if he actually wanted to, but it's not sufficient for us to just be interested in Jesus. We can't just be interested or, oh yeah, that's Jesus. Oh yeah, I, I'll figure that out later. We must for ourselves, you must for your, yourself, come to grips with who he is and respond either by rejecting him or by faith. Here's what I think is interesting. Notice what Herod says. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this? Now, if you want to, you can look over at Mark chapter 6. You probably read some markers there in your Bible that points to Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, he, he lays this story out with a few more details. Here, Luke just says, yeah, Herod beheaded John. But here's what we know happened. The reason that Herod beheaded John is because Herod, he had a brother. Now, Herod the Tetrarch means that he received some land from his dad. And so he's a ruler over uh, one-fifth of the land. And so uh, Herod has this brother. He has a wife and he has a brother. Well, he decided he didn't like his wife very much, but he really liked his brother's wife. You're like, oh, well, that's strange. But today, it's like, oh, that's a TV show. <laughs> so he, he, he's, he likes his brother's wife. And so him being the ruler and the terrible person that he is, he says, you know what, brother, can I have your wife? And I guess, <laughs> Mark doesn't tell us, but I guess his brother was like, you know what? I'm kind of tired of her too, so you can have her. That's fine. So Herod takes this woman, Herodias, you know, beautiful name. Uh, so he says, I want you to be my wife. So Herod takes his brother's wife. And at one point, there's this party they're having. And her daughter, which is both his stepdaughter and his niece, does a very sensual dance, and Herod likes it. You're like, okay, this is getting a little more, this is a little more icky. <laughs> it is, it is. So this young girl does this dance that Herod finds appealing in several different ways. So he likes that, and he says, you know what, young girl, 
who is related to me in multiple ways. You can have anything in the kingdom, up to half of my kingdom. Name anything that you want. Here's where John the Baptist comes in. Because John the Baptist had spoken out against Herod. He had spoken out against Herodias. He said, man, this is messed up. This family situation, this is sinful. And so this young girl goes to her mom and says, mom, what should I ask for in the kingdom? And Herodias says, finally, now is our chance to get rid of John the Baptist. So they go and get John the Baptist out of jail. And they chop his head off. Because Herodias says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. More than half the kingdom. That's what I want. And so that's what Herod does. And so here, Herod's like, I've already done this. I cut his head off. Here's what I want us to see. Notice his reaction. Notice his emotion in this. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? Notice here, there is no remorse in, in what he's saying at all. Now, Luke, being the good historian that he was, he could have added or uh, embellished Herod's remorse here, but he didn't. He's like, man, this, this guy doesn't feel a bit of shame. Here's what I want us to see this morning. For some of us, we walked in here with shame. We walked in here thinking, man, I cannot find forgiveness anywhere. I just can't. I've tried. But can I tell you this morning that that shame is a subjective feeling. It can come and go. Some days you feel it, some days you don't. That's subjective. But let me tell you what's not subjective is guilt. What Herod does not realize here is that he is completely guilty. His guilt is on him, and he doesn't even realize it. But here's what we do with guilt so often. So often, we take the guilt that we have because of our sin, and we act like Herod. We think, oh, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to engage with that. Ah, we make excuses. We find workarounds around our guilt. I know I should, you know, feel shame for this, but I'm not going to. We ignore it. Or on the other side of that, what we do is we get so sunk down in that guilt and in that shame. We're like, man, the forgiveness of God is not sufficient for me. I cannot receive that. I need something more than the forgiveness of God. Right? For most of us, we're at one of those two places. But there are two things that are objective. One is guilt before God. You are guilty before a holy God in the same way that Herod was. And I would plead with you this morning, friends, that you would not respond like Herod, that you wouldn't just be like, oh, I'm guilty and whatever, let's move on. The second thing that's objective is God's forgiveness. Because the same forgiveness that could have extended to Herod will also extend to you. So if you think that you need to feel God's forgiveness in order for it to be real, can I tell you this morning that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you if you will simply confess your sin to him? That's what 1 John tells us. And so if you've confessed your sin to God, he has forgiven that sin in Jesus May that be good news for us this morning as we sit here and look at this man who's guilty who doesn't even realize it. Maybe you're in this pit of shame and you just can't figure it. You run to Jesus. He is the one who can and will and probably has forgiven you of that. That is objective truth. And I would pray that you would lean into that and that you would experience that, that you would experience that forgiveness this morning. Run to Jesus. Don't be like Herod. Don't do what he did. Verse number 10. We get to the story that we're so familiar with. 
So the apostles come back. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Everybody say Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away and go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And had them sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they ate and all were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. I want us to see this in these eight verses this morning. Is that Jesus is sufficient to satisfy your deepest longing. Jesus is sufficient. And I don't mean just with bread and fish. We're going to see how this points to the kingdom of God. But notice if you look back here, which by the way, this is the only miracle besides the resurrection that is mentioned in all four gospels. So this is pretty important. Notice verse number 10, the apostles come back. He goes to this desolate town called Bethsaida. Verse 11, when the crowds learned they followed him, they welcomed him. Now, Jesus doesn't take a day off. He doesn't take a day off from ministry. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm tired. I'm just going to put my garage door down and uh, make sure nobody, if somebody comes knocking on the door, I'm, hey, turn the lights off. We're not home. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, I'm super busy. Got to roll. Ah, Got a phone. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, sell, sell, sell. No, buy. You know, like we don't avoid people. Jesus doesn't say, man, I'm too busy for y'all. He, he the apostles don't come back. Man, let me tell you about all this. And Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's my Sabbath, dog. Like, he doesn't take a day off. He leans into these relationships with people. He welcomes them. And it's not because it's his job to love you. It's because he is a good, compassionate shepherd. But look at verse number 12. The apostles, like we saw last week, they think they're doing a really good job trying to help Jesus. You know, the son of God. Verse 12, now the day began to wear on. The 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away. Come on, Jesus crowd control. We got things to do. You're tired. We're out here in this wilderness. What are we supposed to do? They try to micromanage Jesus. I, I wonder, as I was reading this verse this, uh, this week, uh, I thought, man, these, these guys are, <laughs> they're real slow. <laughs> like, I don't understand what, why this doesn't click a little bit sooner in their brains. Like, come on, disciples. Have you not seen the first eight chapters of this book? Do you not understand the guy you're with? Do you not realize that you just came back from casting out demons and from healing people? And you're coming to Jesus, and you're like, Jesus, there are too many people. What are we going to do? Like, this is crazy. He doesn't say there's 5,000 men who are demon-possessed. It's just 5,000 men, and probably a lot more. We're probably looking at 20, 25,000 people. And the disciples begin freaking out. But, but here's what I was thinking. I thought, how often is that like our prayer life? Man, God, did you know this was going to happen? This is wild. Or it's, God, can I, can I bring my request? Because I know like, you're in control of all things, but here's a really good idea. Have you considered this? 
And if you don't do it, by the way, I'm not going to love you or respect you or worship you. That's what the disciples are doing here. But look at verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Now, this isn't Jesus just like Jesus juking these guys. Like, hey, I, I could do it, but I'm not going to. You figure it out. This is Jesus compassionately saying, I want y'all to be in the work of ministry with me. Jesus could have said, boom, who, what do we want? Let's take, let's take a, an order real quick. What, raise your hands if you want the steak platter. Okay, we have 14,000 of those. Okay, raise your hands if you want grilled chicken. Like, he could have gone through that and said, okay, boom, on your mat right now. Here's your picnic lunch. Hey, Jesus, thanks so much. And Jesus is like, okay, now back to teaching. No, he says, y'all figure it out. Now, notice at the beginning, what did they take with them when they went around to the countryside to begin healing? He said, don't take anything. Because he was saying, I want you to be reminded that you need me. Be desperate for me. Jesus came for those who are needy. Jesus came for the weak, not for the strong. He came for the sick, not for the well. And Jesus says, I want you to be like that. I want you to be weak. I want you to be desperate for me. So he says, you go figure it out. And the disciples are like, oh, we don't know what to do. Jesus is like, yeah, exactly. You don't. Now you're desperate for me. So Jesus says, go feed these folks. In the disciples' defense, they had never seen a miracle on this scale before. We have it because, because we, some of us went to Sunday school, and we had the flannel graph, and we had 5,000 little things that we put up there. The teacher's like, almost, only 17 more to go. You know, so we, we got all these little people that we put. So for us, it's like, oh, yeah, Jesus fed 5,000 people, probably 25,000 people altogether. Big whoop. But the disciples had never seen this. So I would consider that when sometimes you are walking through life, and all of a sudden, whoa, 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 we don't know what's going on. Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe there's a death in the family. Maybe you have a, a kid that's born and you don't know what to do about that. Maybe you just realize that you're going to have a kid and you don't know what to do about that. Maybe there's a work situation. Maybe there's something with a, with a family or with your house or with your job. Whatever that looks like, you're just like, man, I don't, I don't know what's going on. That's where the disciples are. And Jesus, in that moment of your life, wants to teach you what he taught them here. It's to rely on me. I'm the one who provides. You bring your desperation, and I'll bring the provision. You bring your desperation, just come to me. I've got it. Don't worry about it. Because we need to learn this truth over and over. And maybe this is you this morning. You need to learn this truth afresh today, that Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is sufficient. And I would ask you this. What was the last thing in your life that you had to fully rely on Jesus for? What was the last thing in your life? Was it your parenting or do you have that figured out? Was it your job or you're just following the money? Was it a career path or that's why you got a college degree? Was it how you serve or give to the church or that's on auto draft? What is that? What were you actually relying on Jesus for? Because the disciples here, Jesus says, I want you to rely on me. Verse 16. He says, in taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Now, we, we have here a reminder. They're in this wilderness, this desert place, and we're reminded of the Israelites, and they would here be reminded of the Israelites as they were walking around the wilderness. For how many years? 40 years. They were there in this wilderness, and what does God do? He provides manna. He provides quail. What do the people do? They grumble. Why? Because that did not fully satisfy them. 
He said, here's a little foretaste of almost satisfaction, but tomorrow we have to wake up and get it again. Here we have Jesus and the disciples and these crowds in this desert place in Bethsaida in the middle of nowhere. They're like, man, we're hungry in the same way. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you bread and fish. But even more importantly than that, that's not going to fully satisfy you. You're still going to want breakfast tomorrow morning. I'm going to give you myself. Here's how we know that's important because here, Jesus actually takes bread. He breaks it. He blesses it. He hands it out three times. The first time is here. The second time is at the Last Supper with his disciples. And the third time is after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus and his disciples, who knew this guy, okay? Um, they're walking down the road, and Jesus has just resurrected. And he's walking down the road with his disciples. And he's teaching them, and they're like, man, this guy is really smart. I wonder what his name is. I wonder if he's heard about Jesus. They don't understand. They don't see him. And it's not until they get back and Jesus is like, you know what? We've got some fish that they just caught. It's early one morning. We've got some bread. He breaks the bread and blesses it and hands it to them. And all of a sudden, the disciples are like, boom. You can look at the, at the end of, of Luke. I think it's chapter 23. All of a sudden, their eyes are open. And they're like, wait, you're Jesus. And Jesus is like, it's me. I'm Jesus. They're like, all the, all the scriptures have been pointing to you. You're the one who satisfies. And Jesus is like, yeah, I was put to death and I came back to life. And they're like, but now you're alive and you were dead. And he's like, yeah, I'm Jesus. And they're like, wow, this is crazy. We look at it and we're like, man, what are we missing here? It was the fact that when Jesus broke this, he's saying, Right now, maybe you don't recognize, you don't understand this. It's like the parables that we've looked at. But one day, once my work is finished, you're going to see and you're going to appreciate and you're going to worship me for who I am. So here he breaks the bread. He blesses it. He hands it to them as a foreshadowing of what he's going to do. But he's saying, I'm breaking this bread. I'm blessing it. One day my body is going to be broken. Here, this bread is not going to fully satisfy you, but one day your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to realize that I do fully satisfy you. Look at verse number 17. And they all ate and they were satisfied. Now, how did this kid's, you know, lunchable size meal feed this thousands and thousands of people? How, did it, how do we go from, you know, like this hot pocket size thing to everybody gets a, filet fish you know, from McDonald's, like everybody in the whole place. How do we get there? Uh, I imagine that the fish actually tasted good. I imagine that it wasn't raw because that would be strange. So it's like, okay, well, now we got to think about how do they, they cook the fish? I don't know, in heaven? I, I, I'm not sure, but I imagine it tasted really good. It's kind of like when Jesus turned water into wine, what did he say? Man, this is really good stuff. He's not going to be like, hey, I got some fish, but it might give you salmonella, so watch out. Here you go. I imagine it tasted really good. They, now, we've got a few different options, and uh, different folks who are uh, averse to the Bible, they would say, uh, well, actually, Jesus hypnotized everybody, and he made them think that he was just feeding them. I, I don't think that's true. So I read a, a commentator this week, and uh, not a Christian one, uh, but he was talking about this, uh, but he's a professor at UNC, and he said, well, actually, Jesus had these baskets of fish and bread in this cave nearby, and so he knew where he was going to be, and so they brought these baskets to him, and Jesus, this, this dude has a degree in something. He, he says, and Jesus was actually handing it, he'd pull out behind his back, and he tricked 25,000 people with, whoa. I've got another one. It's like Oprah, and you get one. And you, like, there are options. Like, there, there are crazy, ridiculous options for this. But we see here that Jesus blessed it. This came from heaven. It tasted good. This was not a magic trick. 
The crowd wasn't sitting there, hey, let me, let me. Everybody was full, and there were 12 basketfuls left over. Now we can look at a lot of um, allegorical references here. Groups of 50, we can look back at Moses. We see these 12 basketfuls. We see the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. And we can look at all those things. And Israel's looking forward to a king, to a lamb, to a Messiah who's going to satisfy. And in the middle of this, don't miss this. Jesus is saying, man, this is not going to satisfy you. I've got way more where this came from. I've got way more than even your soul can handle. If you think you're coming to me so I can satisfy this little need that you have, no, 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 no. I'm going to satisfy that, and I'm going to have some left over. You're like, well, Jesus, you don't understand how big this need is, this desire is. You don't understand how much I want to be accepted. Jesus is like, no, no, no. I will accept you because of what I've done, and that's way better than anything that you could do. Well, Jesus, you don't understand how bad I'm looking for, uh, for satisfaction in this area in relationship. He's like, no, no, no. You get to have a relationship with the creator of the universe. You're like, oh, Jesus, but I'm, I'm looking for actual, you know, real purpose in this life, real meaning. And Jesus is like, yeah, I created you. I know what you are created for. I'm the one who knew you when you were in your mother's womb. I can satisfy every single one of those needs and still have some left over. We're not going to come to Jesus and not only be full, but Jesus is never like, whoo, you asked for a whole lot. Chill. I got other people. No, Jesus says, I'm sufficient for you and I've got plenty left. You are not going to out-ask the resources that I can provide. They were satisfied. And Jesus was not even close to being exhausted. So run to him. Run to him for meaning and for purpose and for acceptance and peace and forgiveness. Run to him for satisfaction in this life and in the next. Here are a few truths I want us to see this morning. The first truth is this. To embrace life's meaning, you must follow Jesus in this life and into the next. We give ourselves to a lot of stuff. Maybe it's to a relationship with another person. Maybe you're just pursuing that with everything that you have. Maybe you're giving yourself to a business or to a career or to success. There are people, I love watching documentaries. There are so many on cults that people give themselves to. I watched, we watched a documentary this past week. You know how I love those um, and how much time I waste with them. But we watched one uh, on Lula Rich. It's called Lula Rich. It's on Lula Road. If you sell that, great. Don't send it to me or my wife. Uh, or my sister is selling a beauty counter now. Please, if somebody wants to buy a beauty counter, we, we don't want to. My wife doesn't want to. So go see her. Like, go, go join these cults. I mean, you know, MLMs. Like, go join those things. I'm great with somebody else doing them. But you watch these things and people get entrenched. And then all of a sudden they turn around, they're like, wait, I've just spent thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on this, and it's your fault. It's like, no, 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 you didn't realize because you just wanted to find success and you wanted to find identity in something. And so you gave yourself to it without really understanding your purpose for life. But if you want to embrace life's meaning and life's purpose, you must follow Jesus in this life and into the next. That's what I asked you this morning. Do you feel, if you feel... Yeah, I'll, I'll ask you as a question. Do you feel purposeless or powerless? Is that you're just like, man, that's, that's the way I feel this morning. Then I would say run to Jesus. Because not only does Jesus save your soul, but Jesus provides purpose to your soul and he provides power for your soul. 
Embrace life's meaning in Jesus. Secondly, if Jesus is who he says he is, then we now matter. That's the only way that life matters. You see, naturalism, which was birthed out of the Enlightenment and gave way to Darwinism, would say this. We can, all that matters is only what we see. Here's the problem with that. That means what matters is only right here what I say matters. And there is no intent for you to actually ever be born, and after you die, nothing ever matters. Whatever matters is right here for your life. In this 80-year, whatever kind of chunk of your life, that's all that matters. Here's the problem with that. If there is no design for your life, and there's no future for your life, who's to say that right now actually matters? If your beginning doesn't really matter, and your end doesn't really matter, honestly, right now doesn't really matter. And if right now doesn't really matter in some macro uh, level scheme, if there is no God, if it's just us and we look around, well, that means whoever has the strongest preference, that's what wins. Which, by the way, sounds a lot like naturalistic theory, which is Darwinism, survival of the fittest, right? So if naturalism is the ruling philosophy of the day. And I think we've actually even progressed past that because we've said, hey, nothing really matters except for what you say matters. And now we're to the point where we're like, well, if my matter is more than your matter, well, then I guess my matter wins. But even then, I can't really know. We don't really know, so let's just keep going through life. If that's the case, then why in the world do poor people matter? Why in the world does somebody from an opposite gender, why do women matter? Why do black people matter? Why do the unborn matter? Why do old people matter? Because if the only thing that matters is right here in front of me, then nothing else matters. And I don't have to care about those things. But the longing of our heart is the fact that we know that there is a God who has spoken into creation. He says, you matter because Jesus says you matter. Without Jesus, yeah, true, nothing else matters. And eventually it falls flat on his face. But with Jesus, now we matter. Now we matter. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again for us to proclaim that he loves us and to proclaim that we matter. The third truth that I want us to see this morning that we see here in this passage as we look at finding satisfaction in Jesus is this. And maybe this resonates with your heart in the same way that it does with mine become so easily distracted by the trappings and the things of this world. The problem is not primarily our desire for satisfaction, but rather it's where we look for it. It's a God-given desire, but it's like, it's like a man who is extremely thirsty and he goes to the ocean and he begins drinking salt water because he's really thirsty. And he's like, man, this salt water is making me more and more thirsty. You know what I should do? Drink some more water. The problem is it has salt in it. And eventually that person is going to die because while they thought they were pursuing something that was going to bring life, in actuality, it was bringing them closer and closer to death. A relationship with a person, all the success in the world, all the money in the world, everything that you think can bear the weight of your soul's longing is eventually going to break. It cannot bear the weight of your soul's longing. The only person who can bear the weight of your soul's longing is the person for whom you were created. And that's Jesus Christ and him alone. Take your longing there. He is the one who satisfies. 
He's the one who accepts you. It, for some of us, maybe that's terrorizing. Maybe thinking about being in the presence of Jesus is terrorizing to you. I know it is to me at times, because I'm like, man, I'm pursuing so many other things, and Jesus has come pursue me, and I'm like, ah, hey, Jesus, haven't, haven't talked to you in a quick minute. Hey, Jesus, can we, can we make this real fast, because I've got some other things to pursue? But can I tell you this morning that if your soul is searching, if it is longing, Jesus approves of you. He accepts you because of his sacrifice for you. Go to him, run to him. He smiles upon you. What would your life look like if you were living out of that satisfaction that you find in Christ and Christ alone? If every part of your day you thought, man, I'm accepted by Jesus, now let that transform the way that I live. Let that transform the way that I speak to my wife. Let that transform the way that I parent, the way that I go to work. Living out of that acceptance rather than for that acceptance. Living with the understanding that you can be satisfied in Christ, not looking for that satisfaction somewhere else. The last thing that we see here and we saw here in this passage is that Jesus can feed our starving souls until they cannot eat anymore. Jesus can feed our starving souls until they're just like, man, I just, I just can't take another bite. This was so amazing. He's got way more left. We saw in chapter 6 and verse 21, Luke already told us this, blessed are those who hunger, for they will be satisfied. This is the hope that Jesus offers, that we bring our seemingly insurmountable need to him, and then he more than satisfies that. He says, bring whatever it is. You're like, I don't know if you can fill that up, Jesus. He says, yeah, I can. Just run to me. We've seen here that the Jews, they eventually reject Jesus, that Herod ignores Jesus. The disciples forsake Jesus. The crowds turn on Jesus. And I would plead with you this morning, friends, that you would not be like one of them. Time is short. Life is short. Run to Jesus. Whatever you walked in here with this morning, that void in your life that you're trying to fill with something else, bring it to Jesus. He is sufficient to supply every single need. Don't just pursue knowledge about him, but pursue his presence.